0: I wanna welcome you to Todd Talks where our guest today is the Reverend Dr. Angela williams Gorell. Angela earned the Bachelor of Arts in Youth Ministry from Azuzu Pacific University, and then earned two degrees, the Masters of Divinity and the PhD in Practical Theology from Fuller Theological Seminary. Fortunately, Angela is my colleague. She joined the faculty of the George W. Truett Theological Seminary at Baylor University, In the fall of 2019. Angela is an ordained pastor in the Mennonite Church USA, and she has considerable ministry experience. Her research interests and her teaching interests concentrate on contemporary ecclesiology and culture, participatory pedagogy, education and formation, meaning making, joy, about which we're going to hear a good bit more, new media and Youth and Emerging Adults. Angela is the author of the award-winning 2019 volume, Always On, Practicing Faith in a New Media Landscape. Before Angela came to Baylor University, she was an associate research scholar at the Yale Culture for, uh, I'm sorry, for the Yale, at the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. And particularly working on a theology of joy and the Good Life Project, she also lectured in the Divinity School and in Humanities at Yale University. Her work at Yale, significant uh, alongside Marislav Wolf, leads to the discussion today, which is going to revolve around Angela's newly published book, The Gravity of Joy. I love the subtitle, Angela a story of being lost and found. Uh, Thank you for taking the time uh, in the midst of final examinations (laughs) to, uh, to, to, to visit today.
1: Thank you so much Dean Still for having me. I am delighted to be with you today and with everyone who's listening and will be listening.
0: Yeah, so for those of you who are joining live, if you want to share this with a friend, it's available through the Truett Church Network podcast. And so uh, find a way to uh, get this conversation in the hands or better, in the ears of others. So, uh, Angela, uh, not all have had the privilege of reading what is really a remarkable book, uh, like I have had the privilege of reading The Gravity of Joy. So um, maybe you could just share with those who are listening, even if they have read it, what what gave rise to this book? I mean, there's a particular uh, set of empathy, as it were, that almost launched this book. Share with folks um, that story, if you wouldn't mind.
1: Yeah, um... So I was hired at Yale in March of 2016, as you said, to be a part of the research team for the Theology of Joy and the Good Life Project, and I accepted the job with great enthusiasm, as one would imagine, because number one, I was working with Mirasol Wolf; number two, it was at Yale, and number three, my job was to study joy and visions of the good life, and I thought... Is there a better job post PhD? I don't know if there is, I don't know about it. This is an amazing opportunity. And in those first eight months, I read everything I could get my hands on about joy. I was so eager to research it myself, to begin writing about it. And then um, in December of 2016, one week before Christmas, I received a uh, word that my cousin's husband, Dustin, had died by suicide. No sentence had ever, ever impacted me the way that that sentence did. <laughs> I immediately, like my sort of just visceral reaction was no and immediate tears and just over. I mean, honestly, like wailing. And I happened to be in a church parking lot because I had been with the youth group, uh, like as a volunteer youth leader that day hanging out with them. Um, And we had been singing Christmas carols and like playing games in the church basement. And then I come back to my car and find my to get my cell phone because I had left it there to go, you know, just be present with youth. And I find this out and then um, spent the next week really being uh, very present to the most painful experiences of my life and of my family's life. Um, And then I got back to Yale after that week of just tremendous grief, thinking, wow, it's going to, our family, this is going to take a long time for us to heal from and, or to even get on the road to healing. I don't know how we're going to recover from this. I don't know how, I mean, our lives are forever different. And then about a week and a half after that, I got a call from my younger sister that my nephew had died suddenly at 22 years old. And I found myself on planes to Albuquerque, New Mexico sitting around my sister Steph's, that was her son Mason, um, sitting around Steph's kitchen counter for three nights straight with all my sisters till about four or five in the morning, only leaving a couple of times um, to go get an urn for his remains to go to a funeral. It was, it just, and I just, and then I get back to New Haven on a Sunday in Connecticut. That's where Yale is. And just thinking the last three weeks have been so difficult. I'm so exhausted. I don't know how I'm gonna do my job, but um, then, you know, going to work the next couple of days and then getting word two days after I'd returned from Mason's funeral that my dad was dying. And that he was, at, he was at a hospital in the emergency room and then he was moved to the ICU, but they were pretty sure that he was going to die pretty soon. And I went to my first day, I, that was a Tuesday night, I had to teach Life Worth Living with Yale undergraduates for the first time the next morning. And I think that I was so overwhelmed with the grief of the past three and a half weeks that I couldn't even imagine that my dad could possibly be dying this week. (laughs) So I just went to bed out of pure exhaustion and just being overwhelmed with grief and went and taught this class as if, you know, everything had not just happened. And I recount this, what this was like in great detail in chapter one of The Gravity of Joy. But the thing is, is that at the day after I taught Life Worth Living for the first time or I introduced the course, I found myself on three planes and in a rental car trying to get to my dad in Appalachia, where I grew up and where he still lived at the time. And I spent the last five hours of my dad's life with him. My dad died, ultimately his liver and and kidneys shut down after about 12 years of opioid use. I presided over my dad's funeral the following Tuesday. And so I came back to Yale, having spoken at three funerals of three people I loved in four weeks. And each death was very tragic in its own way. Suicide, the senseless death of a young person, and then my dad's opioid use leading to his death. And it was my job to study joy and to teach a class called Life Worth Living. For a year and a half, I lived in the fog of grief, and I could not write about joy. And I couldn't imagine, honestly, ever writing about it. I did my job as best as I could, reading other people's research on it, do, running the quantitative and qualitative research methods for the project and so on. But it wasn't until, and this is really where this book comes from, that I became a chaplain at a women's maximum security prison for women on suicide watch, the overwhelming majority of, which were in, of whom were in prison for uh, substance use or a crime related to substances. And it was there, in that prison, that my family's suffering, the, the, the stories of the women that I met in prison and their suffering, and my research on joy collided. And this book is the result of that collision. This book is about joy. Joy as a counteragent to despair, um, joy as a companion in suffering.
0: So in so many ways, Angela, this is a genre-bending book. It, it, it's not entirely memoir. It, it's not entirely theological reflection. It's not entirely pastoral theology, but it, it is a remarkable admixture of both. So if you were going to take a reader by the, a, or a potential reader by the hand and just kind of walk them along through the arc of the gravity of joy, um, what would it look like?
1: Yes,, um, you're right. It was it's definitely one of those books where I just wrote what came to me and I really did feel like the Spirit of God led me in that. And so it became this book that really is a dialogue between my lived experience, my family's lived experience, the research on joy that 239 scholars participated in um, in our project, from over 140 institutions and multiple disciplines, so that work undergirds this book. And then, as well, like the um, the interviews that I did with people who either are in recovery from sub- substance use or from uh, dealing with suicidal thinking, or people who have lost loved ones, like I did to suicide or to opioid use. And so it's this. And then, obviously, the women's stories in the prison that I met. And so it's this, yeah, this mix and uh, of these, you know, it's this dialogue of all these things coming together. Um, really and written through stories through narrative and so I, I think I've been calling it like a theological memoir or something like that you know Perfect. but um yeah so it has nine chapters and an epilogue and chapters one through four really are about my journey about like what happened in those four weeks like little glimpses of that nothing specific about you know uh, Dustin's suicide or anything like that. So no one has to be, be worried about that. Um, it really is about my own journey of grief. It's about, and for me, I really wanted to talk about what grief feels like in a very honest way. <laughs> I wanted to talk about what it's like to sit with a parent who's dying and the sacredness of that of those moments, of those hours, in a way that really respects and honors both what happened to me but also for so many people. I mean, many people that at some point in our lives, we will sit with someone that we love who's dying. You know, it is a part of, of what it is to be human. And so I wanted to really honestly address grief as well. As, and, and part of that journey for me was a lot of anger and a lot of fear of death. When you lose three people you love in four weeks, you become very nervous about the next phone call you're going to get. Um, and so chapters one through four really, really, honors the grief process. Chapter five is where um, you meet, and um, through the, through my eyes, uh, the women in prison that I became a chaplain, a volunteer chaplain for. And what you discover is that in my attempts to minister to them, to love them, that they ministered to and loved me. And it was these women that began to teach me about joy in the midst of suffering. It was these women who helped me to pray again for the first time in a year and a half. I really experienced following my dad's death, what I describe as the sheer silence of God that I imagine Elisha felt. Um, Silence that becomes a way of God speaking to me eventually, but it didn't feel that way. Um, And and I talk about that in the book, Um, but yeah, in chapter five, um, it's my hope that you fall in love with these women the way that I did. And you get to hear, yeah, more about their lives. In chapter six, I begin to that, that's that's where I really talk about the collision, and I call it the search because I'm 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 really trying to I'm wondering, you know, I'm thinking if our if our research on joy, if our work on life worth living, the class on life worth living that we're teaching, if it doesn't speak to my family's suffering, to these women's suffering, to the larger crisis of despair in American culture. Then what are we doing? You know, and so I, and I'm wondering, might there be some uh, intersection? Might there be some reason? You know, what, what's going on here? And basically, I come to the conclusion that the suicide rates in the United States and the opioid crisis really point to a larger crisis of despair. And then I argue in at the end of chapter six that I think joy could be a counteragent to despair. And I spend the rest of the book talking about why that could be true. So in chapter seven, I I talk very, a lot about a theology of suffering from my perspective. And then in chapter eight and nine, they are, they, those, those chapters are my ode to
0: joy. Love it. Yeah. You all have to take up and read if you haven't already. So, um, a few more questions, Angela, uh, about the book. It's uh, it's gripping and riveting. In fact, some of the endorsers, uh, I recall Todd Bolsinger saying uh, he couldn't put it down. I count myself in that category. So um, who's the intended audience? I mean, when when you're writing this book, I mean, for whom are you writing? I think that
1: there are when I when I when I think about this book, there are three sort of people that I have in mind. One is certainly the kind of person who has endured similar suffering. Uh, If you know someone who has been you know who has used substances and you felt powerless to help them, I think this book will resonate with you. If you have known someone who has died by suicide or has struggled a lot with suicidal thinking and you love them and you you know, have walked with them, I think this book will resonate with you. If you know someone in prison that you love, this book will resonate. So it's really about people who have known a similar suffering, um, or maybe you yourself, maybe you have struggled with substance use, with suicidal thinking, maybe you've been formerly incarcerated. This this is my my hope is that you read this book and you think, I feel seen, I feel understood. Um, Also, I mean, I think ultimately, yeah, if you have also lost someone you love very suddenly, if you've been experiencing grief lately, if in the last year you've lost your job, you've lost someone you you love to COVID. I mean, I think ultimately, if you've experienced profound grief and you wanna feel heard and seen, I think this book is for you. Second, the second person I have in mind are people who want to understand joy more deeply. And I think a lot of us do. Alexander Schmemann, the the great priest who wrote for The Life of the World, among other things, says that joy is the tonality of Christianity. It's how it sounds. If you want to know more about that, if you want to think more about what joy has to do with our lives, and especially as joy is a work of resistance against despair, if you want to think about what it means to be more open to joy in your own life, this book is for you. And then finally, if you're interested in this sort of larger, if you're interested in this crisis of despair and understanding what is happening in in the United States and how how might I be a part of the groundswell of people addressing one or all three of these issues, mass incarceration, suicide rates, the opioid crisis, this book
0: is also for you. So there are any number of portals that people can enter into the gravity of joy. One of the things that stands out to this book uh, 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 of this book to me, uh, Angela, is um, as you've suggested, you may not be content with, but you're willing to sit with grief, and um, uh, we don't do lament especially well, but um, the first four chapters really are um, uh, lament. So for those who are inclined to kind of try to move to the joy too quickly, (laughs) uh, what what might you say to them? Uh, Or if they think, will joy ever come in the morning? Uh, Is there a horizon uh, uh, in in view where joy might come again? I I mean, what what might you say to them?
1: I would say that I did want people to have the experience that I had, which was that I really got to a point of deeply longing for joy. And so, you know, by the time you get to the end of chapter four, you're certainly like, okay, I thought this book was about joy, where is it? And that's how I felt too. I thought I was supposed to be studying joy, where is it? So I wanted, you know, but also I think it's important for people to realize that lament is a gateway to joy. We see it all the time, especially in the Psalms, yeah. that they began very much in a sort of very dark place of, God, where are you? I'm crying out to you. I'm asking you for help. I'm not seeing you at work. What are you doing? Where are you? <laughs> and and then all of a sudden we see in the Psalms that oftentimes the psalmists. They, it, there's this shift, this change of, oh, I remember, or, oh, I'm seeing this. Yeah. I'm suddenly my heart is being softened in this way. And there, and so I want there to be that sense. It really yeah. is written much, like the gravity of joy is written a lot like a psalm. Yeah. And so just like, hopefully you wouldn't give up on Psalm 77, you know, halfway through, <laughs> I hope that you won't give up on the gravity of joy, because also i mean i think theologically speaking too that it's important to realize that the biblical understanding or a biblical understanding of joy for me at the heart of it is luke 15 when i when somebody says what text really teaches you about joy i would say the reason why joy is a sturdier emotion than happiness the reason why it's a more profound emotion than happiness why it's the best and the ultimate Thomas Aquinas says positive emotion is because joy often follows loss or grief. It doesn't always, it doesn't have to, it doesn't always accompany sorrow. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, it doesn't need sorrow to be felt, but oftentimes the most, the deepest joy that we have follows uh, loss or suffering or pain. It's what I would call in what I call in the book restorative or redemptive joy.
0: Yeah. So the 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 coin can be found the 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 sheep can be found the 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 sun can be found. Angela, one of the things that folks who read this book will see is that um, it is shot through, or there are to change the metaphor, there are um, biblical passages. Uh, The biblical reflection just woven through, you've mentioned Elijah, you've mentioned um, uh, Luke 15, you've mentioned uh, the Psalter. Um, What are some other texts that you just might flag to say, these really did help me as I began to think um, theologically, biblically uh, regarding joy?
1: Mm -hmm. I thought, I mean, so I I weave in uh, Mary and Martha weeping, because their brother Lazarus has died and Jesus didn't come, (laughs) which also (laughs) resonates, I think, with a lot of us when we are experiencing grief. We feel like, you know, Jesus, I asked you to come. Where are you? Where have you been? And so but in John 11, where we see that there is a lot of weeping and a lot of honesty, from both of these women. They both ask him the same thing. One decides to go to him and to meet him and greet him. The other one says, I'm not even coming to greet you <laughs> because we're, I don't know where you've been, uh, which I just find amazing and fascinating and I love it. I also talk a, bl- a bit about Job. Yeah. I think it's hard to you know go through what I went through and what my family went through and not think a little bit about Job, especially his friends, his dear friends, who try to show up and tell him that everything happens for a reason. Um, And and for me, very much minimize his pain and his experience in a way that's unhelpful. But I think a lot of us do that for each other. We try to fix one another too quickly. We try to rush to, hey, the story's not finished yet without allowing people to really have room that they need for for true anger, for fear, for grief, for tears. So, um, and then um, I talk about, I mentioned Ezra 3 which is a place for me that was really powerful in understanding this sort of interesting way that joy can reside in close proximity to sorrow within our own souls. And so there's people standing around watching the temple be rebuilt and some people are rejoicing because they're very excited about this and some people are weeping because they remember the way that things used to be. And Ezra says it's difficult to distinguish the sounds of weeping from the sounds of rejoicing. I think this is very, very true in this moment, in the, in the midst of this pandemic in the United States. It's hard, it's hard to distinguish the sounds of, of weeping from, from the sounds of rejoicing. And then finally, I'll say that it, the last, another uh, text that comes to my mind is Elisha, where I I have an experience with the women in prison where I do feel like Elisha's servant, where they realize there are more like that who is with them is greater than what feels like who is against them. And it was just this beautiful moment where I realized that they were my cloud of witnesses. And so yes, throughout the book, you will find all there won't be, you know, there won't be little little parentheses that say this is where you find it. but I, my my hope, my hope was that I would introduce biblical characters to readers, just like I introduced other people throughout the book and interweave them all together, our stories because I think that that that's how I feel like that the biblical writers intended. I felt like that they wanted us to relate to the people that they told stories about and to, to find God in our stories the way that they found God in theirs. Yeah.
0: Speaking of stories, we're all aware of the, well, many of us are aware of the acts 16 text here, Paul and Silas Mm -hmm. having been beaten, uh, there with rods, they're in prison. And, uh, Acts reports that in the midst of this darkness, in the midst of this suffering, uh, they're praying, they're singing songs. Mm-hmm. And one of the features about this book that I absolutely love is your reporting about your singing in, uh, in prison with these women. Mm-hmm. And I've heard you preach a sermon, Angela, in our chapel where you shared a bit of this. And I I just want you to chat for just a moment about how joy for you anyway and for these women uh, was just released through song.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, and we look throughout history and I think we find in different groups where this was also very a very prominent way of getting through, <laughs> you know, like we I think of people who were enslaved, you know, Africans who were enslaved and how my friend Willie James Jennings says that joy is a work of resistance against despair. And what we see in people who were enslaved here in the United States and in Africans who were enslaved was their tremendous capacity to somehow embody joy as a work of resistance um, to despair through their through song, out in the fields, and um, and and also together, you know, in gatherings in the places where they lived. And what I really felt was that, like it was a similar thing in within this prison uh, that I was invited into by these women. I would come oftentimes with a song in mind or two, uh, and then, you know, I would uh, give the words to them. But what I just dis- what I discovered was that over time was that many of them had plenty of songs to share they had better voices than i did better leadership skills in leading music and so i just gave it over to these women and then also we started to sing songs that were simpler where we didn't need the the sheet music you know so that we didn't have to have the words where we would just you know so like i've got a river of life you know like that song like like flowing out of me opens prison doors sets the captives free it has a different it it sings differently in a prison <laughs> when you were when you're actually in a prison with women and um, but yeah what what happened was as we began to release our, ourselves from the papers and to get tied you know being tied to words and we began to memorize the words they shared songs that they wanted to sing together taught each other the choruses and everything the more we began to let go and really, they taught me, they thought they really taught me about letting go. But um, we especially we had a, a woman who was very, very gifted. I think I told her she should be a choir director when she leaves because because she was very gifted at getting everyone out of their seats, getting people like broken up into groups, you know, getting people singing lines. And it was just amazing. And whenever she was there, especially she was a drummer as well. So she's very gifted singer, very gifted director, but also a drummer. So she would drum in the window seal and like, you know, get everyone on beat. And then everyone would just, and there was something about Mm. giving ourselves over, to the moment that really allowed for joy because we weren't concerned with how we were singing, how we were being seen, how we were moving. There were no mirrors in the place. We weren't concerned with how, yeah, there was no shame in this space. And as, and when there's no shame and you began to, you know, like joy is an embodied experience. Joy needs freedom. Joy needs room. And the more that we had that, the more we were, we, we yeah. And so we would get lost in the moment. And I describe in, in at one point in the book, that we are singing this little light of mine so passionately and so loudly. I mean, there were like 20 something of us in the room and dancing and having so much fun that I forgot that where I was, first of all. But secondly, a corrections officer comes in and all of us are kind of like, but we keep going because we're wondering, is she going to shut down the Bible study? Because that often happened where they would just come in and be like, it's done. You have to leave. And sometimes wouldn't even tell us why. Um, But she came in and just started clapping and singing with us because she knew this song. And we all, and then we finished and we were all just laughing boisterously. She's laughing and she was like, you all are really worshiping in here tonight. And we were like, yes, we are, you know, so.
0: So, as you say in your book, here's God now offering us uh, witness through joy and witness uh, through joy. L- lo- lovely turn of phrase. Well, Angela, I'm. Uh, I, we've not been able to visit as much as I wish we had because of COVID. So I could let this go on a, a really long time, but you have other things to do. So let me pivot a bit. And um, others will have read, uh, or at least have referred to, or Uh, are aware of your first uh, book, uh, your award-winning Always On. And I wonder, um, I think people will appreciate this reflection. Um, In light of, this was written before the pandemic, published before the pandemic. So in light of um, COVID-19 and all the challenges that this has created and all of the additional time on. <laughs> uh, what, what would you say to us um, uh, that, that might allow us to use this, this new digital landscape in, in, in responsible ways or perhaps in ways that don't uh, destroy our souls or still our joy? Uh, I wonder if uh, I can ask you that unfair question. In other words, if, if you were writing always on now, instead of then, what occurs to you that might be particularly poignant in this moment?
1: Hmm. Um, I think that, you know, really when I think about some of the things that I was hoping for, for the book, I actually, um, I hope that this doesn't sound strange, but I I really do think that still several of the things that I really wanted to put a fine point on matter a lot today. Right. And that's really only by the grace of God. But I also, I did, you know, so one thing I just want to say is that <clears throat> one of the lines in Always On is that God is online. And I think it's important to know that in every digital space, including the one that you and I are in together right now, and that all of us are that all of you who are listening are sharing with us is that the spirit of God resides in us and is with us wherever we are, whether in Zoom conversations, in this digital space, or in social media spaces. And for me, that's very comforting. You know, the, the biblical account of the Holy Spirit's guidance in our lives is very powerful for me. The spirit is there to be our teacher, to be our mentor, to pray on our behalf to help us with what to say, to comfort us. And I really believe very strongly that the Holy Spirit is with us in the midst of all the news we read, in our emailing, in our texting, in our phone calls, in all of our mediated conversation, and in in digital spaces that God is with us and God is helping. And so one thing that I really want to encourage people is to try to think about their interactions in digital spaces, the ways that that I would encourage them to think about their in-person interactions, which is the spirit of God is with me. So God, you know, I always say, you know, you've heard me say like, as a practical theologian, I feel like the two questions I help people to ask constantly are God, what are you doing and how might I join in what you're doing? And I hope that you're asking that in every digital space that you enter into just like, you know, that kind of is the way that we shape our days. That's what I hope for. Um, Secondly, I would say that I do think it's important to have what I call at the end of chapter six, the end of the book and always on um, a rhythm of life for, for the new media landscape, a rule of life. I call it a rhythm of life because I feel like it's a better word than rule, um, especially for millennials and gen X, (laughs) gen Zers. So um, I, I think it's important to, you know, historically, many uh, different monastic communities have had rules of life that help them, where they integrate very intentional practices into their life that help them to sense the spirit of God, to practice their faith. And I encourage people in Always On to have a rhythm of life that includes intentional Sabbaths from media. Every July for the last few years, I have taken two weeks of no social media and no email. And it is a wonderful way of like letting go. I mean, it's wonderful and it's really important. I'm a digital enthusiast. I believe that God is with us in digital spaces, but I also encourage everyone who's listening to have times in their year when they really do take, you know, take time away from devices and from social media. And so I encourage you, whether that's one day a week or it's a couple weeks a year or one week a year or one week at this time and one week at another time, or any number of things that you might do, but to just be intentional about creating a rhythm of life that includes time away from devices. Also, I encourage people to think really um, intentionally about what are the practices of my faith that I wanna integrate into my new media use. I talk in chapter six about things like truth telling, and um, I talk about advocacy and mercy so there's all sorts of christian practices compassion and prayer you know many we hospitality and listening so to, to think together maybe at, with your the people in your household with your close friend group uh, or, or but especially with yourself you know, what would it look like for me? What kind of relationship do I want to have to to new media? What are the sorts of practices that I would love to shape my new media use in the coming year? And then to think about this every once in a while in your life, once a year, once every couple of years, what is my new, how, how is my new media engagement impacting me? My relationship with God, my relationship with other people, and how might I, you know, I really integrate my practices of faith into, into that.
0: That's amazing. Um, those are timely uh, reminders, even uh, <laughs> all too close to home. So I, I'm, I'm going to do better. I'm going to try uh, to follow, especially number two. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Angela, as we kind of come down the home stretch, um, I, I know folks who've read Always On. Uh, I know folks that have read or will read The Gravity of Joy, um, you know, <laughs> we're never satisfied. Uh, what, what's next? Uh, what are you working on? What can we uh, look forward to coming from uh, Angela Gorel?
1: I have two different books, or maybe three, but like ideas. I don't know if one, if two of the ideas can be integrated. But so one thing that I've been teaching at Truitt is a class called Teaching for Transformation. And throughout the class, I provide uh, students at Truett with principles of and characteristics, beliefs, practices of educators of all sorts and kinds. How do you teach for transformation? What is it? How do you teach in a way that people like how do people learn and what you know and why do people remember certain things and forget other things? And so I would love to write a book that really would uh, bring together all the sorts of things that I'm teaching in that class. And so it would be a book that is dedicated to engaging participatory pedagogy, as you were saying at the beginning, I mean, my inter- in- introduction, I'm very interested in that. And so yeah, Teaching for Transformation is one book that I'm working on, participatory pedagogy book. Another uh, book that I've been thinking about is a book about wisdom how do you make hard decisions? How have people throughout history in the Bible um, and also throughout the Christian tradition, like um, throughout history and in present day, how have people made difficult decisions? What does it mean to listen to the heart, to the spirit? Uh, How, yeah, so a book about cultivating wisdom and then the other sort of book, but it might be able to be integrated into the Teaching for Transformation book, I'm thinking but not sure exactly. I've been teaching another class at Truitt called Jesus and the Meaning of Life. And I also had half half the class was undergraduates, half the class was graduate students. It went um, it w- went really well this semester. It just ended last week and got a lot of papers to grade today and tomorrow <laughs> for that class. But um, so this class is about in light of the life and teachings of Jesus, what is a meaningful life? And how do we articulate that as Christians? And so it's, it's sort of a new vision for discipleship and evangelism uh you know for witness so how do we maybe what what would it look like to help young people to think about what it means to follow jesus in light of key questions that we were asking at yale in life worth living um things like what is you know so that yeah so what is a meaningful life those are three different projects that i've got a little bit going in each one and we'll see which what what comes together first but
0: (laughs) well As you read uh, you all uh, Marislav Wolf's uh, preface, his foreword to uh, uh, Dr. Gorel's volume, one of the things that you will discover is what uh, Truett students and Truett colleagues have discovered that Dr. Gorel is a gifted teacher and that teaching and research would coalesce and reinforce and uh, inform one another is I gather the best way to go speaking of going uh, we probably better come to a close as we do Angela I just thought that it would be really meaningful at least it would be meaningful to me if you could close with um, just a word uh, what' what's what's kind of in the frontal lobe what's what's weighing on your heart and then if you wouldn't mind to just uh, dismiss us as it were uh, if 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 this is a place that the spirit of God has uh, been in and we believe it is dismiss us in a word of prayer.
1: Yes. Thank you so much for those invitations. I feel led to say to anyone who's listening either now or in the future, that if you're experiencing a lot of anxiety, depression, sadness, I really do believe that with God's help and with, um, with the help of other people, like that, as you, open yourselves up to other people and you, you speak honestly about what you're going through, the way that I did with the women in prison, the way that they did with me. If you find yourself in community with people uh, being vulnerable and being honest, that you will not always feel the way that you do. <laughs> um, I really wanna say like that on the days when that are dark and difficult, that it's easy to feel like this will never lift. And I wanna say that thanks be to God, I do believe that for all of us, like it does lift a bit, at least, and that you won't always feel this way. Also, in conjunction with that, I just want to say that because joy is the very presence of God, because it is what it feels like for God to minister to us, no matter what you are going through, joy can always, always find you. And so it's my great hope to all of you today that unspeakable joy will find you soon. Uh, Let's pray. Thank you so much, God, for being with us in every space, in every place in our lives. Thank you so much for giving us other human beings to be in community with. Thank you so much for giving us this beautiful gift of joy in our lives. Help each one of us who is here, who is listening in the future, help us to become more open to joy Help us to open our hands, our hearts, our minds to your joy, God. And when joy finds us, help us to give ourselves open uh, over to it. Help us to give ourselves permission to feel it deeply and openly. Help us to be honest about our laments, our anger, our fear so that we can work through those emotions in constructive ways and find the healing that we need from any suffering that we are currently enduring or will endure. God, we long to hear your voice. We long to know what you're up to, what you're doing. And we long to join in your work in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Amen. Angela, delightful. Uh, So grateful. Happy grading and uh, see you at commencement on Friday. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone.